0: Christmas, of course, is a season for giving. So I want to ask you, how many of you have something like this in your memory drawer? This is from one of my daughters. It was a card. The, um, the instruments of this gift are just a plain old eight and a half by 11 piece of paper and a pencil and some crayons. Dear Daddy, I'm so glad you're my dad. I'll always remember that you love me. The raw materials of this are love. And that's what makes a simple card something that becomes a treasure for us that we save. We have all also, probably at different times, received a gift that we know was token, it was expected, there wasn't really any thought that went behind it, perhaps it was last minute, but it would have been awkward not to give a gift and so here you are. (laughs) And it's the opposite, it might actually be a value. But knowing the lack of the raw material of love behind that gift affects its personal impact, affects its value for us. And one of the things that we see in Malachi is that God longs for every act of ours to flow from a heart of love towards him. God longs for every act on our part to flow from a heart of love towards Him. And in Malachi chapter 1, we see that that's not what is taking place. The first thing we see in Malachi chapter 1 is that the people believe a lie, that they are doubting God's love towards them. Malachi 1, 2 reads, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? They had a set of expectations about what God's love towards them looks like. Remember, the people of Israel, the chosen people, the apple of God's eye who had been led out of Egypt with great signs of power, who had experienced crushing victories over the enemies around them. They were the ones who were supposed to be the center of God's focus and the recipients of God's blessings. But at the time that Malachi is writing to the people of Israel, the the post-exilic period, they are not seeing that, and so they are questioning God's blessings. Remember, first of all, that they had been through a time of terrible suffering. A foreign nation had invaded, had killed thousands of them had torn down the walls, had devastated the land. They had lost literally everything. They lost everything. They were taken off into exile. They lived captive in a foreign land for all of those years. This is the opposite of what they were expecting to see as a manifestation of God's love. And so they look This is now several generations of people who are experiencing the suffering, and they look at that and they say, you love us? How have you loved us? And then on top of that, it's not only this recent history of suffering, but it is their present circumstances in which they're not seeing the blessing, but the wicked are seeing the blessing, and so they continue to ask themselves this question. Skipping ahead a little bit, Malachi 3.14, the people are saying it's futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out His requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Lord Almighty? Now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Instead of them experience the blessings of God's love, it looks to them like the wicked who are surrounding them are the ones who live in blessing. You say you love us? I don't see love in these circumstances that I'm going through. We have returned to the land. They know the promises that came through the previous prophets about God restoring the greatness of the nation, about God crushing all of the enemies, about Jerusalem once again being the center of all the earth and the nation streaming in. And they look around and say, there's no glory here. We're still broken down. We're still surrounded by enemies. We're still subjects to a foreign power. We still live in poverty, barely eking out an existence in this devastated land. You say you love us. How have you loved us? And living, believing that lie makes it really difficult then to love God in response. And so the people's response to this perceived lack of love is apathetic, second-rate worship. We need some background here to understand what's happening with the defiled offerings that we are about to read about in Malachi 1. The the history, the culture, the expectation of giving God our very best is first seen in the story of Abraham when the three visitors come. Those three visitors are a manifestation, are an appearance of the Lord God to Abraham. And when Abraham's receiving these three witnesses, At three, um, these three men, he says to Sarah, Go and make a meal and use the finest flour and find a choice lamb that is tender and prepare that meal. Abraham wants to honor his guests. And so this form of sacrifice that he is about to make, not because of any law that had been given. There are no laws given about the proper kinds of sacrifices at this point. There's just a man who wants to honor the Lord. And so he gives his very finest. This then works itself into the law beginning in Exodus chapter 12. The story of the Passover, when the angel of destruction is going to pass over the land of Egypt as the final of the, uh, of the plagues on Egypt, but those who offer the Passover sacrifice will be preserved, and they are commanded, take a lamb without defect and offer it to the Lord. And so then when you come to Leviticus and the formal system of sacrifice is being instituted and the priests are commanded about the kind of sacrifices that are to be offered, these are the words we read. Leviticus chapter, sorry, slipped my mind, 22, verses 21 and 22. When anyone brings from the herd or flock a fellowship offering to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or as a free will offering, it must be, it must be without defect or blemish in order to be acceptable. Do not offer to the Lord the blind, the injured, the maimed, or anything with warts or that's festering or has festering or running sores. Do not place any of these on the altar as a food offering to be presented to the Lord. So this is the reason and this is the command about sacrifices that are supposed to be offered to the Lord. Pure and without fault. Why? Because God is worthy. He is holy. He is loving. He is worthy of being honored. Over and over again, when the Old Testament commands are given, God says, I am the Lord who is holy. You do these things in order to be holy. It is only right that the Lord of the universe receive the very best. This is affirmed for us, actually, in several places here in Malachi chapter 1. In just a couple minutes, we're going to read this one section where God says, Am I not greater than your earthly governor? And if you were offering your governor something, wouldn't you give him the very best? Who's your hero? There are probably some Swifties in here. There are probably some people who love sports in here. You know, imagine LeBron James. Imagine Taylor Swift. Imagine your political hero, whoever it is, is coming to your house for dinner. That's cool. They're going to be right here. We're going to spend time together, right? You're going to do your very best. Hey, I got some leftovers in the fridge. Want to share them together? No. You want to honor that person with your very best. And God is saying, I am so much greater than any of these earthly idols. We use that word, don't we? I am so much greater than any of these. If you would give them your best, of course, He is worthy of our very best. He goes on to say, He's not just worthy, He's not Merely more worthy than those who are among us who we seek to honor. He is worth being worshipped in all of the nations. What an amazing verse, Malachi one eleven. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets, in every place incense and pure offerings. Not just the people of Israel who are supposed to offer pure offerings. In every place, from the rising of the sun to the setting, every nation is going to offer pure offerings because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. God has given these commands to the people of Israel because he is worthy above every other name Of pure, of first rate worship. But the people have a different attitude. For them, God hasn't kept his promises. He hasn't held up his end of the bargain. I don't see God's love towards me in the way that I expect to see God's love towards me. And so I begin to think of him as irrelevant. He doesn't really care. He's not really paying attention. He's not interested. And so I'm just going through the motions. Here's the situation in Malachi 1, starting to read in verse 6. A son honors his father, a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer, direct contradiction of Leviticus 22, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. And so they have begun to dishonor God through their disobedience. They've begun to feel like I'm not, getting my, I'm not getting God's very best towards me. God is getting second best from me. What's happening with the best? They're keeping it for themselves. God gets what's left over after all of my particular needs or desires have been satisfied. God gets second-rate worship. And in doing so, they have begun to fall into this legalistic system of taking God for granted. Look at verse 9. Now plead with God to be gracious to us. So God's just said, you're offering me this garbage on the altar, and then you're pleading that I would be gracious towards you. With with such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? The relationship has been reduced to transactional surface worship or service to the Lord. I'm going to offer these sacrifices because I'm supposed to offer these sacrifices. My heart's not really in it, not doing my very best. But, hey, I'm keeping the law, I'm offering the sacrifices, and I'm going to ask for God's blessing. And maybe God will start coming through for me because I'm doing what He told me I ought to do. Now, I'm not really doing what He told me I ought to do. And I'm certainly not doing it from a heart of love. But I'm expecting that He ought to respond because... In a technical sense, I'm at least offering the offerings that He has required. They're, tarting, they're They're taking God for granted, expecting Him to respond even when they themselves are giving what's second best. And then Malachi goes on to say that they are actually showing contempt towards God because they consider their worship, their service towards God, to be burdensome. Verse 13, you say, what a burden, and you sniff contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. God's requirements have not become something that they respond to in love and that they follow through on worshipfully. God's requirements are something that is inconvenient and heavy, and they do the minimum to get by so that at least they're kind of following the law, but their heart isn't in it. It's kind of like that gift. No thought went behind it. No love built into it. Well, here you go. Merry Christmas. So how does God respond to that kind of worship on the part of the people? He would rather they not worship at all than to receive something that doesn't come from their heart. Let's look at verse 10, oh that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. He would rather not receive that kind of worship at all. If it's going to be second rate, if it's going to be what's left over, if it's going to be burdensome, tiresome, inconvenient, don't even bother, says the Lord, I'd rather you shut the doors of the temple. The point being that it is useless, it is worthless. He goes on in verse 10 to say, I am not pleased with you. I will accept no offering from your hands. The problem with a half-hearted offering that does not flow from love is that it is not pleasing to Him and it is deceiving to us. If we're actually bold enough just not to give anything and say, you know what, I don't think you love me, I'm not going to follow you. At least we're being honest. But if we assuage our consciences by saying, well, I'm going to do the minimum. At least I've got something here to offer. God is no more pleased because he sees the heart than he would be with no gift at all. But we have deceived ourselves about what we are doing and about the quality of our worship. Half-hearted worship and service to the Lord is worse than none at all. Reminds us of when Jesus says to the churches, I'd rather you be hot or cold because you are lukewarm. I just want to spew you out of my mouth. You've picked up that lukewarm cup of coffee, right? Ah. (laughs) Give me iced coffee with lots of sugar. Give me hot black coffee, right? Not this in-between stuff. That's how God looks at the dishonoring, disobedient, contemptuous, burdensome sacrifices that the people are bringing to Him. And so, He actually proclaims a curse on those who would dishonor Him in this way. Malachi 1 ends verse 14, Cursed is the cheat. Who has an acceptable male in his flock, male sacrifice, and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And then the curse continues in chapter two, specifically towards the priests who who excuse these kinds of offerings, who compromise the word of the Lord and convince the people that what they are doing is okay. God says it's not okay. So what do you do with that? You begin to tell yourself the truth about God's love. We need to tell ourselves the truth about God's love. Israel needs to hear the truth about God's love. God's God's love is not measured by the circumstances in which I find myself. God's love is not measured in how well He meets my expectations or follows through on my definition of what is blessing, what is healing. God's love is not defined by me. God's love is defined by Him. And when we begin to understand His kind of love for us, it transforms our relationship with Him. And the first way that we see God's love in Malachi chapter 1 is that it is simply shown in his choice. This is a hard truth, but let's listen to it. Going back to verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not, Esau's Jacob, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. We're going to go on with verse 3 in a second, but let's pause there for just a second. I have loved Jacob. God's love is shown in His choice of Jacob. We need to understand that God's choice of Jacob was not rooted in Jacob's intrinsic value. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. The Lord says... I've loved you because I've chosen you. And it's not because you were a particularly wonderful people. You weren't numerous. You weren't great. You weren't powerful. This isn't in Deuteronomy chapter 7, but it's still true. God didn't look forward into Israel's future and see what a wonderful, faithful, consistent, idol rejecting. God serving people they would be through all their history, and so He chose them. God simply made a loving choice, not based on any intrinsic value in Jacob, and that's love. We could spend a lot of time here. Anybody want to go down the rabbit trail, Calvinism, Arminianism, why God makes the choice, what's behind all that? We don't have time for it. And good Christians, who are a whole lot smarter than me, have argued about it for a very long time. But there's some things that everybody has in common in this regard. And one is that everybody believes that God predestined in love. Because the thing is, that's exactly what the Bible says. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, end of verse 4, beginning at verse 5. In love... In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Now, people can argue about what's behind that love, and we're not going to do that this morning. But the affirmation throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New, Israel and us, is that when God makes a choice, He does it because He loves And all I'm trying to say with all this complicated stuff is if you are here this morning in Jesus Christ, if your faith is in Him, it's because He loves you. And that's all the testimony you need. If you are in Christ, you are an object of God's love. And that's all the testimony that we need about it. But there is more to demonstrate God's love for us. God's love is also shown to us in His gracious response to our sinfulness. His gracious response to our wayward hearts. And so we continue these Difficult verses at the beginning of Malachi chapter 1. I've loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have I loved you? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Jacob is the choice of God's love. Esau is not. Esau is turned into a desert wasteland. They are not restored to the land. They never receive another promise of God's blessing. It's wiped out. Edom is gone. But God says to Jacob, chapter 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change, and so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. One of the things we've talked about in the course of the Minor Prophets, it's there's no difference between the sin of Jacob and the sin of Edom. There's no difference between that idolatry and the other, between that violence and the other, between that injustice and the other. Jacob is just as worthy of total destruction as Esau is. But God says, despite your sin, despite your wretchedness, despite all the stuff that you have done, I will not destroy you because I love you. And He gathers the people back into the land. Yeah, they're not experiencing blessing in the way that they want to in the way that they expected to. But God has been gracious in response to His wayward child, and that is a demonstration of His love. And how many of us here, even in Christ, are still wayward? And God is still gracious. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we come back to Him time and time again. I've fallen again. I've failed again. And He welcomes us because we are His children and the objects of His love. This love frees us from the performance mentality that constantly tries to work its way into our worship and service. If we are doing something for the Lord because we think we need to earn His favor, because we think we're trying to buy His blessing, He looks at it and says, that's not the kind of sacrifice I'm seeking. I've already done everything. When we grasp God's great love towards us, that then allows us to worship and serve Him freely. This is the gospel in action. We've been talking about the gospel and the minor prophets for so long. It's still true. Jesus Christ took the sin. Jesus Christ took the punishment. He took the retribution. He fulfilled all righteousness, and He says to us, give me your sin. I'll take it to the cross. Receive my righteousness, and now live in my love. And oh, how great is that love. I have loved you with an everlasting love, says the Lord. You are loved with everlasting love. It's built on the immutability of God. I am the God who does not change. Therefore, you are not destroyed. He has loved us with the greatest love possible. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. He has loved us with immeasurable love. Our weak minds can't even grasp the dimensions How long and wide and high and deep is the love of God for us in Christ Jesus? This is the love that He pours out on us continually, day after day. G. Campbell Morgan says, God says, I have and I do and I continually love you despite your profanity, sacrilege, greed, apathy, blasphemy, and the list goes on. That's God's message to Israel. That's God's message to us today. And then in light of that love, if we can grasp that abundant, that unfathomable, that immeasurable and immutable and eternal love towards us, then hearts respond. Not out of obligation, not out of a sense of inconvenience or burden, but out of love towards Him. So how can we honor or love God? And that is to offer Him our very best sacrifice possible. The three different ways that we read about sacrifices that we offer to Him. And one, a sacrifice of praise. We honor God with wholehearted, enthusiastic, overflowing worship towards Him. and so I'm actually going to ask some questions about church attendance for example <laughs> is it a burden there's all kinds of reasons that we can't come to church on any particular sunday And I hope one thing that we've seen so clearly is it's not about condemnation and it's not about guilt, but it is about letting our hearts overflow in love towards the Lord. I was shocked last, I think it was last week, yeah, last week, Sunday after Thanksgiving, talked to a friend of mine who was here, said, I thought you were traveling over the Thanksgiving holiday. We came back on Saturday because we wanted to be in church on Sunday. I don't do that. (sighs) But that's a value. I want to worship the Lord with the people of the Lord. It's not burdensome. It is an expression of love towards God and His church. That's why he said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Not because me showing up on a Sunday morning does him any particular good, but because it gives me an opportunity to worship him together with his people and to serve his people. Flowing out not of a sense of inconvenience and not out of a sense of I'm going to get something that I want or need or expect but simply because I want to offer the Lord my best. And then that comes down to another really hard question, and that is our participation and our attitude in worship. Half-hearted worship because I'm not getting what I want or expect is worse than no worship at all. Warren Wiersbe said, if our concept of God is so low that we think he will be pleased with cheap, half-hearted worship, we don't know the God of the Bible at all. Having experienced his love, let us gather together to offer him our sacrifice of praise together with each other as part of the family of God. Another way we can honor God is to offer Him our best in our private life. I'm talking about personal holiness and about spiritual disciplines. I have a true story to tell you, and I hope you won't fire me after you hear it. The other day I got up late and rushed out the door, and I actually had the thought, what if somebody asks me about my devotions today? And so I'm sitting at a red light and I busted out my Bible so that I could say I read something. Doing my devotions at a red light because I want to please people. I want to follow the letter of the law. And you know what God says? He says, don't even bother. And he doesn't say don't bother contemptuously. And he doesn't say don't bother condemningly. He puts me on his knee and he says, Tom, don't worry about it. Find the time when you can give me your best and I can give you my best. That's what he wants. I have another friend described to me once the time when he can give his best is lunch hour at work. So he goes out to his truck and pulls out his Bible and spends his lunch hour in his time of devotion, because that's when he has his best to offer the Lord. What is the best time that you have to offer God? And what is the best of you that you have to offer God? Again, referring to personal holiness. That is what he's asking us for. Please hear, it's not rooted in law. He's already done everything. It's rooted in love. And that leads us to the final one, and that is our service, offering Him the very best of our energies. We live in a church body together that needs the best from each other, and we live in a world, a community and a world that needs our very best. Not what's left over. After I've done everything that I need to do because of my obligations, desires, expectations, whatever it might be, here's here's a little bit. Our very best in service to each other and to the world. Let's pray together. Oh Father, I say these words and just know how far even I personally fall short. We all do. The Puritans led us in prayer, and we have so often prayed, we have not loved you. Our primary confession is we have not loved you with our whole heart and our whole soul and all of our mind and all of our strength, nor have we loved our neighbor as ourself. Thank you that you do not abandon us and that you do not condemn us and that you do not despair of us. Thank you that you give us everything that is necessary for life and godliness in Christ Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for life overflowing and abundant. Just make us more channels of that life for your honor, because you're worthy, and for your honor among the nations where your name will be praised. Amen.